always one more thing, one more rung, one more step. There is always more to do, always more people willing to do more to establish their own righteousness. That's what a missionary in Morocco said as he observed Muslims' efforts during the month of Ramadan. You know, one of the five pillars of Islam is fasting. During the month which began yesterday, so for the next month, our Muslim friends here will be abstaining, fasting, not only from food, but during the day from drink, tobacco, perfume, sexual intercourse between sunrise and sunset. This is how you get right with God, according to Islam. As one of the Muslim hadith, one of the official teachings, says, He who keeps the fast of Ramadan faithfully and truly will come out from under his sins as on the day his mother bore him. So it can earn you lots of merit and make up for lots of demerit. Salvation. Eternal destiny hangs in the balance during Ramadan. So, no wonder people take it so seriously. One writer explained, if when cleaning the teeth a drop of water should pass down the throat, if medicine is put into the ear, nose, or even a wound in the head, if after a night meal a portion of food larger than a grain of corn should remain between the teeth or in the cavity of the tooth, in all such cases, another's day fast must be kept. According to their tradition, Ramadan is when Muhammad received revelation from heaven, and so good deeds performed during Ramadan earn more credit than during other times. One Muslim authority said, when the month of Ramadan starts, the gates of heaven are opened and the gates of hell are closed. So you can be assured it's a time of serious soul-searching for many. Which is why I think we should use this month of Ramadan especially to reach out to our Muslim friends and in particular the local people here among us. Why? Because it's a serious time of self-reflection and generosity and openness. Sheikh Mohammed's own Center for Cultural Understanding urges that we do this. I quote, Ramadan is a perfect time to go in the early evening to your neighbor's house, maybe even bring a plate of sweets and introduce yourself. Now, that sounds to me like just a good idea. It goes on, during Ramadan, local families are simply expecting friends, neighbors, even lost strangers, or the poor to visit and enjoy tea, coffee, usually some special dishes or sweets. So you show up and you ring the doorbell and they come out and they say, what are you doing here? And you say, I have an open invitation from Sheikh Mohammed's Center for Cultural Understanding. <laughs> and they'll say, oh, we'll come right in. Let's lovingly engage with our Muslim friends during this season, especially. I mean, just ask, how's your fasting? Why are you fasting? How are you doing spiritually? Are you learning anything? Would you like to talk more? Some are seeking answers to the big questions of life, like, why am I here? Can I know God? What does He want from me? What's coming next? They're urged, these Muslims, to try harder during Ramadan. Imams actually call it a month of striving, you know, a month of toiling, straining. As one of their teachers said, this is a month of earning, and we should work hard to earn reward and righteousness. So, reading the Quran, refraining from sinful activities and food and drink during the day, staying up late to pray. I wonder, can you, can you relate to any of that? You may not be observing Ramadan, but has your performance of spiritual duties become formulaic, blasé? Are you getting tired? 
of climbing the ladder? Are you more aware of your sin this Ramadan than of God's grace? How can we be sure that we're really right with God? Well, to answer these questions, let's turn to, of all places, the Law of Moses and Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, where we resume our series through this book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 10, verse 12. These were the instructions that God gave His chosen people, Israel, And this is some 1,500 years before Jesus Christ. Remember, God had rescued them, preserved them, brought them to the borders of the Promised Land after a 40-year wandering. And now God's prophet, Moses, gave them these final instructions. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord God, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. In other words, Moses was saying, when you enter the promised land, remain loyal to Him. Don't give in to the temptations of idolatry, but be careful to keep His word. And this is repeated, of course, again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. Look over at chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. Or look down at 11, verse 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Or look at the last verse of chapter 11. 11 verse 32. You shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. Now here's the question. How is this any different from Ramadan and Islam? Because what's being emphasize what's being urged upon these people is the necessity of obedience. So how is this not just another set of religious instructions that religious people follow? You know, some follow the law of Judaism, others follow the law of Islam, and then some people make up their own law to follow. So what's the difference? Don't religious pluralists tell us that Islam is basically the same as Christianity in terms of its overall outlook and message? Well, no, it's not. Here's why these laws are unique. Five motivations why Israel should obey these laws. It's a matter of the heart. So five motivations why the people of God should obey all these laws. That's the structure of our sermon this morning. So, why obey these words? Number one, because of God's love. Because of God's love. 10 verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So what does he require in verse 12? Look down at the verse again. Notice the imperative verbs. Fear, walk, love, serve, 
And then into uh, verse 13, keep. And of these five requirements, notice the, the central one, the one in the center, is love. It's an all-encompassing expression of covenant loyalty. They're in kind of a marriage covenant. And these are all just positive ways of stating the negative, you shall have no other God before me. You know the first commandment? You shall have no other God before me. So, why be loyal to this God? Because He loved you first. And not because He had to. Not because He was boxed in by some external regulation somehow. The fact is, He owns all of the nations. And He could have chosen any of them, or He could have chosen all of them, or He could have chosen none of them. But He chose you. And it was a perfectly free decision. Look again at verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Not because they were better. Not because they were bigger. It was as we saw back in chapter 7. He loved them because he loved them. And so he chose them out of all of the nations on the earth to be his covenant people. And friends, the same is true for us today, his new covenant people, the church of Jesus Christ. You know, the doctrine of eternal election is not designed to provoke endless arguments, but wondering worship. That's the design of it. Election puts the spotlight on God's mercy. I mean the free and the undeserved gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Here is a God worthy of wondering worship that He chose us. Friends, He is not your business partner. He is not your co-pilot. He's the sovereign God. D. James Kennedy once said, the reason people today are opposed to election is because they will have God be anything but God. He can be a cosmic psychiatrist, a helpful shepherd, a leader, a teacher, anything at all, only not God, for a very simple reason. They want to be God themselves. So, in view of the overflowing mercy of God, in choosing these richly undeserving people to be His covenant people, what's the proper response? Be loyal to Him. Be faithful as the covenant partner. That's what this is saying. It's not talking merely about outward conformity, is it? This isn't just behavior modification or rule keeping. I mean, anybody can do that. And frankly, the cults can do that a lot better than we can. People can tick the boxes. They can pray five times a day. They can adhere to very strict regulations. But is that what God is looking for? Merely outward behavioral modification? Look at verse 16. Verse 16, very important verse. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. So remind yourself of the situation. There they are. For 40 years they have wandered and now they have arrived at the borders of the promised land, poised to receive their inheritance, and God calls upon them for radical heart surgery. Now circumcision is the cutting away of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. It was practiced in other parts of the ancient Near East not only among the Israelites, but in other parts of the region, it was a sign of entrance into manhood. For the people of Israel, it was different. It was done for them at, the, at eight days of age for the baby boy as a sign of entry into the community of God. So God had commanded Abraham and his offspring to be circumcised, thus creating a physical nation. But just because they had that 
outward mark, just because they were formally Jewish, did not mean that their hearts were circumcised or that they loved God. And you know, the same holds true today, doesn't it? I mean, lots of people attend church. Lots of people go through the religious rituals and motions, but still, they don't know God. Which is why God says, be no longer stubborn. Repent. You know, throughout their history, Israel had shown themselves to be fundamentally unbelieving. God pled with them. Be circumcised in heart. Why? Because He loved them. And He chose them. And not only that, but He showed Himself to be a just God. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. Why is it that this God takes no bribes? Well, it's because He owns everything already. Unlike other gods, He has no needs. You know, in Dehradun, India, in the Hindu temples, they, they bring coconuts and fruit to the gods in order to sustain them. Well, not this God. You can't be bought off with rituals. Verse 17, He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords, and He does all things according to His justice, according to that which conforms to His character, even protecting the sojourner, the refugee. Think of the millions of Ukrainians who are refugees in Poland right now. And He expects His people to love them as well. Look at verse 19. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Just as He had promised Abraham many centuries before. And why? Was it because Abraham was such an exemplary person, so virtuous? No, it was because of the astonishing truth that God loves unlovely people. He is merciful in that way. Now, later today, ask the average man at Ibn Battuta. And he will surely say, well, of course God loves me. Because I'm pretty lovable in and of myself. But they were not lovely by any stretch of the imagination. They were sinners, rebellious, grumbling, disobeying, committing adultery, all manner of sin. Though they were undeserving, though they did not earn it, here was a reason for obedience. God had, in spite of all that, set His affection on them. God's love was motivation to obey. Motivation number two is God's discipline. God's discipline. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand and His outstretched arm. His signs and His deeds that He did in Egypt to Pharaoh and the king of Egypt and to all the, the land, and what He did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how He made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after Him, after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what He did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what He did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that He did. It's interesting how different God's love is from ours. Our love tends to slide into sentimentality. 
Our love we think of more as an emotion or a feeling, but not God. His is always a holy love, consistent with all of His character. And when you unhitch God's love from His holiness, well, you get a cartoon version of Christianity. It's like the sad implosion that we've seen of Hillsong over the last few weeks with headlines in the New York Times, once the leading edge of cool Christianity, now church closures, public embarrassments, scandals. David Wells wrote of this tendency to unhitch God's love from His holiness. He said the result is a Christianity that's culturally at home, racy, politically correct, and endlessly tolerant. It wants to be on the cutting edge of culture, but only because it has a yearning to catch the new breeze that blows. It prizes love, but it's love of a cultural kind. And it prizes holiness, but it's holiness only of a political kind. And it ends up with neither. But not in Deuteronomy. Here, we see God's holy love in His discipline, both formative, that is, positive, and corrective, negative aspects of discipline. Positively, God had shown Israel His majesty by routing the global superpower of the day. So He would fight His battle with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Verse 3, it says His signs and His deeds that He did for them in Egypt. You can think of this discipline more as education. He was teaching His people to trust Him with what was going to come in the future. But if they wouldn't trust Him, negatively, God also disciplined them. You see that in verse 5. You've seen what He did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what He did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. This refers to two rebels, along with uh, Korah, who rebelled against Moses. You can read of it later in Numbers chapter 16. These people were offended that they had to go through Moses to get to God. So they felt, we don't need a mediator. We can directly approach God. Why should we go through Moses? But they learned the hard way that God opposes the proud. And they were swallowed up in a violent earthquake. And this is because God's character is morally pure and holy in such a way that He cannot coexist, cannot dwell with evil rebellion. And this foreshadowed a future day, a day still coming, when all of us will give an account finally to Him regardless of the fact that many people say, well, God is okay with my sin. Atonement is not really necessary because He already is disposed to favor us. You know, even Islam views sin differently than the Bible does. In Islam, did you know that sin is not a personal affront against God? Well, that's because the God of Islam is too far removed. He's not directly concerned or implicated in our disobedience. But not here. The God of the Bible, the only true God, actually made us in His image, designed us so that we would display His character to the world. He desires that we love Him with all of our hearts. And so God's people should be loyal to Him because of God's love, because of God's discipline, and thirdly, because of God's land. God's land, 11 verse 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong, and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. 
But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Do you remember that time way back in Deuteronomy 1 when Moses recounted about sending the spies into the promised land? And uh, when they returned, they brought that fat cluster of grapes that was so heavily laden that it required two of them to carry it on a pole. What was the point of that account? Isn't the point that this is a good land? This is arable land, farmable, fruitful land. Now, why is it that the land was such a big deal in the Bible? Isn't the reason that God was going to live there in this particular patch of real estate, he would actually take up residence among his people, transforming it into a new Garden of Eden of sorts. So the land is described in idealized utopian terms. A land flowing with milk and honey. Unlike Egypt, a land that wouldn't even require irrigation because the Lord would water it himself. Now, we know theologically God made the whole world, and He is transcendent. He dwells in heaven. He is, he is above all time and space. And yet, for a unique period of world history, He would actually live among His people in that land. Verse 12, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. There was no other place like that before or since. Well, maybe the Garden of Eden. Now, the New Testament sees the promised land of Canaan as a symbol of something in the future, a new heaven and a new earth still to come when Christ returns. And that's why the Apostle Peter spoke of being born again into an inheritance kept for you in heaven. Well, friends, this is our hope. I mean, of all the things going on in the world today, our hope is not winning the culture wars. It is not our career. It is not even the well-being of our families. Our hope is living personally with Christ in an unmediated, direct way in a restored universe. This hope was prefigured in Canaan. So Canaan is like a microcosm of the ultimate hope that we have. And now, in Deuteronomy, it was about to come to pass. But would they stay there? Would they live long in the land? Only if they heeded motivation number four. Motivation number four, God's blessing. If they would remain loyal to Him, not only would they get into the land, but that they would remain in the land. He would keep them, preserve them. Look at uh, 11, verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments, verse 13, that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Obedience in the land would bring prosperity, blessing. Disobedience would bring hardship, cursing. It's the same thing we, thought we saw back in chapter 7. And back in chapter 7, if you recall, we noticed how confusing it can be if we fail to recognize that we today, UCCD, are not the people of Israel. We are not parties to the Old Covenant. So don't make the mistake of making a one-to-one -one correspondence between the church of Jesus Christ and the people of Israel. We who are here inhabit a new covenant. We are under different terms. We saw there's a difference between the Lord's spiritual blessings and His physical blessings to them in particular in Canaan. His spiritual promises we can enjoy now through the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, yes, but these promises here in Deuteronomy, I mean bountiful harvests, 
uh, barns full of grain and wine. Those are not direct promises for us now. They will be enjoyed, ultimately. But in the eschaton, in the last times when Christ returns, in a new heaven and a new earth, as Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When will they inherit the earth? When Christ returns and brings in a new world order. Until then, we still struggle with sin and sickness, disappointment and death. Friends, this world is not our home. So let's not go into it with the expectations that it is. But still, don't miss the amazing truth that for the people of Israel, for this unique period of time, God was incentivizing them. He was motivating them that faithful allegiance would result in physical blessing of a massive sort. But what if they were blessed? And what if they were prosperous in the land? What then? Look at verse 16. Chapter 11, verse 16. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord your God is giving you. False worship would quickly lead to exile outside the land. Kind of like in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Disobedience means expulsion. And just remember where these people were going. They're going into Canaan, where agriculture and religion were inextricably intertwined. The Canaanite farmers did not separate them at all. In fact, they believed Baal and the other fertility gods were more involved than planting and plowing. Now, the Hebrews would have to go into this new environment and learn farming, but without the fertility gods. They would have to trust Yahweh. And He is a God who demands total allegiance. And then there's one final and fifth motivation. A final motivation is this, God's presence. God's presence will be with you. Look at verse 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be, shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all His ways, and holding fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread, as he promised you. So if they remain faithful, the promise was God would go with them. He would never leave them. He would fight their battles. That's verse 23 kind of the, the operative verse in the paragraph, verse 23, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. The Lord would do this. Of course, Israel would be there. They would participate, but we all know who really won the battle. Verse 25, no one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread. Now, when they were gathered there on the borders, their greatest problem from an earthly standpoint was the enemies within the borders. The superiority, they were stronger. 
They were bigger. They were mightier. In and of themselves, there was no way possible that Israel could vanquish these people, that they could conquer the land. But if God is for us, then who can be against us? So superior is he to all of those enemies that they hardly even registered on the scales of threat. All of this was promised. All of this was offered to them. But under what condition? Under what circumstances? Well, they must heed God's words. Look at verse 18. Lay up in the, the, these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hands. So those were to be reminders, kind of like setting an alarm on your iPhone. Remember this stuff. Not only that generation, but future generations as well would need to heed God's word. And that meant parents had a responsibility. Look at verse 19. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house. You know, as I step back and think about all of this, it is amazing to me how Bible-centered this society was supposed to be. Down to their home decor, verse 20, you shall write them, referring to God's words, you shall actually write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you know I know a woman who actually did this? She used to be a member of this church. She moved into a new home in Dubai years ago, and she actually anointed her doorposts and her gates with oil in order to dedicate the house to the Lord. I mean, it was well-intentioned. She wanted to get, dedicate her home to the Lord. But what's the point of this passage? The point is, when you're in your home, you should read God's Word, and you should discuss it. No, you should be saturated with it. It wasn't magical. Verse 18 says, Lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, so let it be the subject of your contemplation and your conversation. When you rise up, when you go to bed, teach God's Word, all of you who are parents, teach God's Word to your children. Be assured, the world is teaching your kids, right? The world has an agenda for your children. And don't forget, you can never get these days back. Don't ever think, well, we're going through a particularly busy season at work, or my kids, they have exams, and, well, you're never going to get those days back, are you? We only have one life. We only have one chance. It's like our friend Deb Seiler, who once... Uh, asked a group of older ladies about their Bible reading habits, and to Deb's dismay, these older Christian women confessed that they were not in the habit of reading Scripture at all. And Deb replied, my heart was so sad. First we say we're too busy with school, then too busy with career, then too busy with marriage and kids. Now, these ladies told me, they're too tired. I wonder, does that describe anyone here today? Is there anyone here who is struggling to love God's Word? If that is you, if you have a desire problem when it comes to the Bible, as all of us do from time to time, let me give you five bullet point suggestions, okay? Five suggestions if you're struggling to desire God's Word. Number one is simply pray. Pray that God would forgive you. Pray that God would change your heart, give you spiritual hunger. Number two, commit to read one chapter daily. Read, reflect, and pray. That's a good starting point. Just one chapter. I'm going to read Mark chapter 1. Next, next day, I'm reading Mark chapter 2. Number three, if you are a woman, get my wife's book, which is called A Good Portion, The Doctrine of Scripture. The reason I say that is not because she's sitting in the second row. It's because this book that she wrote is actually the fruit of her wrestling for many years with a desire for a growing love for, for God's Word. And uh, the book is on the bookstall at the back. I would urge you, get your hands on it, read it. It is excellent.
Number four, ask other people to pray for you so that you'll love God's word more. And then number five, attend very carefully to God's word in preaching. When you come on Sundays, endeavor to come with a sense of expectancy, having read the passage beforehand, having prayed for that your heart would be inclined to your word. Now, in the case of Old Testament Israel, what would be the result if these people lived such word-centered lives? Well, it says in verse 21, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. But those of us who have read the rest of the Old Testament know that they didn't stay there. Fast forward to the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, and the people have slid downhill now for centuries, succumbing to idolatry and to unbelief, and so God eventually removed them. He sent them into exile, and they experienced not God's blessing, but God's curse. Despite these five motivations to follow Him, despite God's love and God's discipline, and the land, and the blessing, and God's presence, they were left, when they entered that land, with a simple binary choice. Look at verse 26. Chapter 11, verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I command you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Now, when I say it was a binary choice, I mean it was either A or B. And there was no middle option. There was no wavering between two opinions. You're either all in on this or you're all out. And this choice was so solemn that when the people entered the land, God would memorialize it with a dramatic ceremony, which we see there in verse 29. Verse 29, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan? west of the road toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal beside the oak of Moreh. For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. And in time, the people did cross over led by Moses' assistant, Joshua. And you know, it's interesting, we read in the book of Joshua that they actually observe this ceremony, this one described here. In Joshua chapter 8, the covenant is renewed, and it says, afterward he read all the, the words of the law, all the blessing and all the curse. These were people who had been given fair warning, and yet they never did obey. Why is it that these people were so rebellious? Why is it that the incomplete story of Israel is such a tragedy? Here's why. The law never brought with it the power to obey. The law in and of itself didn't have the power for us to obey. Now, as we close... Turn ahead in Deuteronomy to chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. As Moses wraps up his sermon, I mean, you think this sermon is long? How long do you think this sermon was? He keeps going all the way to chapter 29. And he's bringing it to a conclusion. And what does he say to them in verse 4? Verse 4, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand 
or eyes to see or ears to hear. The Lord had not given those things. Seeing, they did not see. Hearing, they did not hear. You see, all humans by nature are blind spiritually. We come into this world spiritually dead. And to most of the people of Israel, even Israel, no transforming grace had been given. Something more was needed. But there was a promise of a new covenant to come. A future era when not some of God's people, but all of God's people would be enabled to obey. Turn to the next chapter, chapter 30. Chapter 30, look at verse 5. Here Moses is predicting a time when the people would be sent in exile and then he would, he would collect God's scattered children, he would regather them. 30 verse 5, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And then notice this. This is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. On that day, all of God's people would be transformed spiritually empowered now to love God in a way that would actually please Him. A day when God's Spirit would give them a new heart capable of fundamental obedience. But when would that happen? When would this occur? It's interesting that when we read the Gospels, they tell us that when Jesus was crucified, darkness covered the land for three whole hours. And it was in the middle of the day, and it wasn't an eclipse. And after those three hours, we're told Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken on the cross. Now, bear that in mind and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. This is in the New Testament, after the Gospels, after Romans, after Corinthians. Look at Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, do you remember that binary choice that all of us must make? Either obedience for God's blessing or disobedience for God's cursing. This says that there is a holy curse hanging over all sin. The wages of sin is death. But when Jesus was crucified... He received the divine curse for us. Look now at Galatians 3, verse 13. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon that tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown and love beyond degree. Friends, the truth is, none of us in this room has loved God with all of our heart. We have all loved other things more, and that's what sin is. Sin is when we belittle the transcendent Creator God by loving other things more than Him, and we displace God, and we try to take God's seat preferring other things over Him. John Piper said, we glorify what we enjoy most, and it isn't God. And as a result, Jesus came and endured the curse that we might know God's blessing. But not only that, verse 14 of Galatians 3 says, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And so now, all of God's people receive the Spirit. All of God's people can now truly please God. 
No more empty ritual. No more outward religion. Ramadan comes around every year. Every year the spiritual activity picks up and the checklists and the calendars come out. The painstaking labor begins. But how can you become sure? How can you be confident that you've done enough to have a right standing in God's presence? Do you know regardless of your culture, regardless of your religious background, there is only one way that you can be assured of a right standing with God. And it is not by religion. It is not by ritual. It's only by the work of another. One who lived in our place, died in our place, bearing our curse and securing the spirit and the ability to love God because grace brings not only pardon, grace brings power. Dick Lucas once recounted an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in the Roman Empire. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you're a religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where's your temple or your holy place? We don't have a temple, replied the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replied the, the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? Where do you offer your sacrifices and acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor. And of course the answer is, this is no religion at all. Let's pray. Lord, we're staggered by these laws and commands. We read them and we consider them any ways we fall short, and yet we celebrate the one who bore the curse in our place and has now enabled us by the Spirit to live in a new way. And we long more and more to live in a way that does please you, that does accord with your character, that brings you final glory and honor. Lord, thank you for the treasure you've given us in this book and in your spirit. We pray, Lord, that increasingly we as a congregation would be shaped by these truths. Lord, even as we sing this final song, seal these things to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.